Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Just a little heads up on this week's episode of White Wine Question Time. Conversations surrounding drug abuse, drug addiction and suicide are featured. Hello and welcome to White Wine Question Time, the podcast that asks its guests three thought-provoking questions over three glasses of wine. And this week, my guest is a British comedian who we've been seeing more and more of as he transcends stand-up to co-host shows like Britain's Top Takeaways and Love Island's After Sun. And now he's about to pull on his skates and make like Torval and Dean as a contestant on this year's Dancing on Ice. Raised by his mother Paulette with his brother in the black country in the West Midlands, his young life saw enough drama to qualify as box set worthy. As a child, his father Patrick was in and out of prison and in 2000 took his own life while serving a sentence for drug dealing when he was just 11 years old. This triggered a string of bad decisions that saw him join a teenage gang and get himself into all kinds of scrapes before waking up in hospital on New Year's Eve in 2004. He was 16 and he'd been severely beaten by one of his own gang members, which forced him to reevaluate his life and change his path. He supported himself through college, working nights as a bouncer at nightclubs in Birmingham and also as a security guard at his local 99p store whilst building a name for himself as a stand-up. He even worked on the door at the London Apollo and many years later, when he arrived to perform there for the BBC's Live at the Apollo show, the head of security recognised him and thought he turned up for the wrong shift. Later that same year, he was nominated for Best Newcomer at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival and in 2019 became the first black British male to be nominated for the Best Show Award. He's written two series of Black Label, a personal account of his life for BBC Four and BBC Sounds and has been immortalised in a mural in Birmingham where he's the face of the West Midlands Tourist Board. 
he's come a long way from the difficult days of his youth. And as he masters the ice against the likes of Joey Essex and Patsy Palmer, he's also just announced Roadman, his brand new tour, which will travel the UK in 2023. So let's dial him up, shall we? It's Darren Harriet. How are you? I'm very well. What an intro. That was amazing. I saw my whole life flash before my eyes during that intro. You listen, I was listening to it and I'm like, oh yeah, wow. Yeah, oh, well, yeah, I remember that. There was one point where I was like, oh yeah, that happened to me. <laughs> oh, that was me. <laughs> oh yeah, that was me. And then it's, it's very strange when something starts off with sort of dad taking a life in prison, joining the gang, and then going to ice skating, uh, Joey Essex, Patsy Palmer. It's quite the... It's been it's been quite the story, hasn't it, so far? <laughs> the story arc is quite something, Darren. And you've written it all yourself. I mean, it is like I think I said in there, your young life certainly was sort of worthy of a box set. It's the sort of thing that we would binge on Netflix. Um and it's something you've never shied away from. And I think it's brilliant that you share so much of the ups and the downs. Mm, yeah, yeah, you've you've got to, especially when you're um when you're a comedian. Uh, it just, it, it comes kind of naturally. You go, okay, well, what do I have? What What is there about me that's quite unique and a bit different that I can talk about on stage? Yeah. Um, not only because, you know, there's not many people, talk, not many other people talking about the same thing, but also it kind of helps you deal with it, helps you deal with certain, you know, certain things that has happened in my life. A lot of my early stages of, if you would say, therapy or healing in a way was talking about it on stage because it it does it does actually help a little bit um just getting used to saying it on stage and talking to different types of people about it afterwards because you do meet you know when I used to talk about my dad's death on stage I would meet people who would come up to me and then talk to me about their dad's death and we would just have this moment having a, a really deep nice conversation about our dads you know surrounded by people who were usually uh, pissed up wearing cock hats because they're on a, a hen do. <laughs> and we're like, yeah, my my dad was, my dad was uh, you know, he was a great man. And then, like, Rihanna music's playing and someone's, like, down in WKDs behind us. Yeah, we had quite, quite nice little moments. <laughs> it's amazing where you can find connection, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it really is. Stood next to a woman dressed as a penis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's always a good sign as a comedian when you go into a gig. You go, oh, there's somebody dressed as a, an actual penis. Oh, I bet they're into comedy. I bet they're going to pay attention. <laughs> yeah. But you know what? It is therapy what you've done. It's a talking therapy. You know, that's what it is. And I guess for you as well, really helpful at times to see people's reaction to your story because it stops stops us being desensitised to our own trials and yeah. tribulations it happens a lot with me so especially in my early days of comedy i would talk about my dad's death and i used to say i used to i always remember i used to say it straight i'd go my uh, my dad died when i was 11 he hung himself in prison and that was it was always that it was always said like that on stage and obviously there's a tension and all that sort of stuff and i would build you know we'd eventually get to some laughter but i'd always say that and what would happen was I would become slightly desensitized to saying that and I would forget the impact that that I know obviously I know the impact it had on me but I would forget about the impact it would have on other people saying it uh. so I would go on a date 
And she would be like, oh, so tell me about your dad. And I'd be like, oh, my dad was a, a drug dealer who uh, killed himself in prison. So uh, what side orders are you thinking? And uh, <laughs> you would see her face like, oh, and I'd go, oh, yeah, that is quite, that is really deep stuff. I would completely forget. You can forget doing comedy. You really do kind of become desensitised to saying certain things. I would imagine, though, as a, as a tool to own and hold a room, it really, it, it's way better than going, shh, shh, shh. <laughs> Suddenly, like, you oh, yeah. say that and everybody looks up and everybody is <laughs> listening. You've got them then. What you do with them after that is down to you. 100% Kate, 100% on that. When you say that, everybody's like, hold on a second. What's going on? What was yeah. that? Yeah, yeah, definitely. There's only, there's like a handful of things you can say on stage about yourself that will have an audience completely in the palm of your hands. It's a very sort of high risk. Uh, yeah. you are you are bringing them into this world and you are getting their trust. And if I was to do a joke that were almost was too much of a lie and then the punchline was that never really happened yeah there is a part of that you'd lose them a bit because they would be like oh well that was really really deep and you know you explained that in such a way that it sounds so real to me but then it wasn't oh you're not the sort of person we want to believe in anymore and you you could actually lose the audience with it so i had to figure out quite early on how to carry on from that moment because I knew that it was such a it was such a, a a really deep good moment to have the audience in the palm of my hands for something like that and then I had to reward them and reward myself without selling out my dad's death for a cheap joke or something like that uh, all at the same time and it took it took years to really figure that out because when you're a new comedian you are. And I, I, I say this about all comedians when they are new, terrible. <laughs> You're very, <laughs> you are terrible. You have, a, you, you have all the enthusiasm in the world, but you're terrible. Like I'm the opposite now. I have less enthusiasm, but I'm pretty good. But back then, yeah. all the enthusiasm, but terrible at comedy. But that's, that's the learning curve, isn't it? And that's, you only learn that by getting out on the road and accruing those kind of air miles, I suppose. I think thought you sounded like a very seasoned pro as I listened to um, Black Label, which I really enjoyed, by the way. Oh, um, thank you. And that must have been quite a show to pull together. Just for those that haven't downloaded and listened, explain what Black Label is. Yeah, Black Label is basically me just, uh, just talking about my life. So just talking about like where I'm from, I'm from the black country, talking about my my love of the area and the Birmingham. And then there's parts of me talking about being a bouncer. And of course, me being in a gang as well when I joined a gang. And it's such a different show for for Radio 4. It is. But it, it is and it isn't because the way you land it, this show tells you that you've learned how to carry that story through and hold people. And and that takes me really nicely to my first question. You've turned the really dark and very difficult times of your life into great material. But it always comes, I think, with the side of something really meaningful and inspirational. And as you block through your life to write uh, Black Label... I wondered, did you sort of hang those shows on the moments that made you? And if so, what are those moments? And what were the lessons that you kind of extracted from them? 
moments that made me obviously my dad's death is is something that you know i don't think i'd be doing comedy if my dad was still alive which is a weird thing to say i i know it's something i think about all the time i think about it probably more so than i should because when i did my first ever stand-up gig it was at a place called the saffron bankruptcy suite in birmingham 2006 i want to say I remember looking at a picture of my dad. So you're young, right? You're young then. I was 18. It's just I just turned 18. Yeah, I was sorry. so lost in the world and so angry. So, okay, so very quickly, my dad died in March 2000. Uh, Septem- I was 11. September 2000, I started sort of secondary school, high school, whatever you want to call it. I was busy for five years. I you know, go through puberty, new friends, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, fancying women and all that sort of stuff and figuring out what I want to do with my life. I was busy with being at secondary school. So I wasn't, I was still thinking about my dad's death, but I had, hadn't had that, that much time to sort of take it all in. After that, I started college, hated college because college felt like school. So then I was kind of a bit lost and all these thoughts of my dad came back and I was really depressed. And um, I was I was at college one day and I saw a flyer for a, 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 a variety night. It was a bit of a mixture, you know, music, uh, poetry, all that sort of stuff, and comedy. And I was like, oh, I want to have a go. I'll have a go at comedy. And I remember I went and did this gig, my first ever gig. Before I went in, I was outside sitting on a, sitting on a wall looking at a picture of my dad. And, and I always remember that moment. because I've, I, I've, I'm, I'm pretty sure there was a tear in my eye. And I was just looking at my dad, and I don't really know why. Because my mom didn't know. None of my family knew I was going to give comedy a go. No. I didn't want to tell anyone just in case he went terrible. It just seemed me have the worst gig of my life ever. And and the gig went well, as well as the first gig ever goes. And and then from then on, that was it. I found this thing. It was almost like something to keep me busy, keep me occupied. And then next thing I know, I'm a 19-year-old kid and I'm in car shares with comedians who are in their mid-40s who are at the same level of, as me but they've got mortgages they've got wives they've got full-time jobs but me and them are driving to bloody Brighton from Birmingham to do a gig for 10 minutes I remember one time I was in a car with one comedian who was like it was like I'll be honest with you Darren when I was um in school uh, me and my friends we were all racist we used to hate all the black kids and we would call them names and all this sort of stuff and I'm really ashamed of myself for this. And he used to talk about it on stage as well. And he was like, oh, but you know, my daughter now, she's dating a black kid. It's great. But we, we were just almost following a trend of being racist and all this. And we're connecting over this thing called comedy. It was comedy that was keeping us together because we had nothing in common. We were completely yeah. different people. But I was on these, doing these car shares because I didn't drive because I was so young, and the generosity and the kindness. Sometimes they would never ask for petrol. They would take us to gigs. Sometimes there was three in the car, four in the car, all different ages. I was always the youngest one. So and quite really... paternal figures in some ways as well then, Darren. Yeah, it really was. Because uh, the thing was, I had nothing to lose. I was living with my mum. I was working at a JD Sports. And I just <laughs> had it. I just liked doing comedy. And it really opened me up to being very open-minded because I was in, I was in car shares. I was 18. I was in car shares with people who were gay, who were uh, non-binary at the time, which we didn't know was called non-binary. I remember talking to one comic at the time 
who 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 I now know is non-binary, but back then we didn't really know what it was because it was like 15, 16 years ago. I remember there was a comic who came out, almost came out and said, oh yeah, he says, I, I, I actually think I'm gay, but I don't know how to like tell people. And it was this amazing experience with all these different people. I was so young. And just to give you a bit of where I was at that time, I had not long left the gang after they beat me up, I used to carry a knife. I used to want to be a grime MC. I was I was literally what somebody would call like a wannabe gangster on the street. And next thing you know, I'm with some middle-aged, like 50-odd-year-old white guy who's talking to me uh, about his daughter's piano lessons. And I'm in the car with him talking to him about when I used to be in a gang and we're on our way to do a gig. <laughs> and it was, it was those moments that really helped me it really opened my mind and opened who I am as a person today. That's why I'm so open-minded with anyone because I remember being such a closed off teenager oh. and then meeting all these people and spending so many hours on the road with people who I had absolutely zero in common with at the beginning, we eventually found something, but it was always comedy that kept us together. And it's just, it's crazy. If you had seen us, or like sometimes since some of the car shed, you, you and somebody said to you, "What do you think these these four people have in common?" You <laughs> you you, you would probably have gone. I'm, I don't know why these four people would be in a car together, but it was. Yeah, I would say I would say those early days really did help me. They helped me grow as a because I I I grew as I became a man doing comedy. I was a I was a boy. I but you also broadened your horizons. You had different conversations. You. We're mixing yeah. with people who were multi-generational. Um, and I totally get that, the importance of it, because you can you can just you can just follow in other people's slipstreams when you as you were as a young, disaffected yeah. youth, right? Yeah. Everyone was in a gang, therefore you're in a gang. Yeah. You wake up on New Year's Day, black and blue, in hospital, thinking, actually, am I this is this me? I mean, I'm paraphrasing because I heard some of your show, but is that was that that moment for you? That that moment of um, like an epiphany? I, I I I don't think it was an epiphany at the time because I was I was so embarrassed. That I you'd been beaten up. That I'd been beaten up by the guys that I only hung about with at school, that everybody knew I was in a gang with. And remember, we were you know fifteen, sixteen year old boys. You know how they are overly macho and you know um, big, massive yeah. egos. And I, I was so angry. I held that anger in me for so long. So what happened was, and and the, the, this will go to the the first question again. Was when I got beaten up. I then had about it happened in de December. I finished uh, secondary school in like May. So I then had to spend at least three, four months at school with the same people who beat me up and everybody knew. So I didn't Like a walk start, of shame. Like a walk of shame. But, but what made it even worse was I never went back to school at the same time as everybody else. Because everybody else went to school, say January, I don't know, 10th or whatever. I went back the 25th because I had to spend an extra two weeks because I was still black and blue. So I never started with everybody else. So when I did eventually come back to school, it was even more obvious that what had happened. So I spent the next sort of three, four months just feeling awkward, feeling angry. And then I left. And luckily, when I finished school, 
as awkward as it was, I started high, I started college. None of them went to college. None of them even bothered with college. So when I went to college, it was guys from my school that I were, was friends with anyway and new friends. Yeah. So it wasn't like I was still around any of them anyway. And um, a massive turning point for me was... So I carried that anger of being beaten up by by the by this guy because they were like my friends and they were you know we all didn't have dads we all had this common bond of hey my dad's an alcoholic who doesn't care my dad you know killed himself my dad's in prison my dad's this but you know what we were this gang and we want to make music and we were we're cool man and we're you know I can't talk to my family but I can talk to you guys about whatever and then after it, they beat me up I had so much anger. I I believe the reason why I wasn't as good as a comedian quite early on in my career was not just because I was learning the ropes, but because I was carrying so much anger towards these yeah. guys. So I was angry from the age of 16 when it happened all the way until I was 23. And then um, the what what changed for me was I just so happened to have been walking through a place called Smevik, um, near where I'm from, and I saw the main guy, the one who really did the damage. And I saw him walking with this little girl, this cute girl, and he was holding her hand. And I saw it, and I went, oh, he's a dad. Oh, that's, that's his daughter. Good for him. Good for him. And I, I seeing that, I didn't do anything, I didn't say anything, just seeing him... As a as a man, I guess, grown up, being a parent, and I'm I was still holding still some anger towards him. It all just vanished because I was like, "What are you doing, Darren? Like, he's he's not thinking about you. He's got a child. He's got responsibilities. He's actually grown up." And all my anger and hatred for all of them because I had not seen any of them. They weren't on social media. Some of them had been in prison and whatnot. They, you know, it was all over the place. It all just completely disappeared seeing him with his daughter mm -hmm. and him just being a parent. And then it's quite funny because about a year ago, that same guy saw one of my friends and said, oh, tell Darren, ah, oh, really, really happy for him. I'm really happy for what he's doing. So he's, he's completely unaware of how damaging his and their behaviour was on, yeah. in terms of, of you and how you viewed yourself. It sounds to me like you were heartbroken. You were oh, betrayed by them, horribly betrayed. I felt like my my school years were I mean, obviously they weren't a waste, but I felt like they were a waste. I felt like I had built these relationships because you know you know what it's like when you when you're that young. You believe that your friends in school are going to be your friends forever, and nine yeah. times out of ten, once you go to uni or college, you completely separate yeah. you know you don't know that then do you you, you have no idea yeah because you demonize them in your own head don't you they become far scarier than they actually uh, a are and b deserve to be but they were children right they were children then doesn't make what they did right but it does make it easier to forgive yeah because you you also go well you know what was what was going on in their lives as well at yeah. the time and it, it's funny how things change over time how how you look at things so differently, and I, I, of course, you know we we grew up, didn't we? We you know we became mm. adults with some sort of perspective on things. There's some really hard moments of realization in life that sort of um, sort of change your path and the way you view people. And I think you, you touched on one of them in your show when you talked about the time, the last time you spoke to your dad, 
and he'd called you and he would just disappear, right? And you never knew where he was. You certainly didn't know he was in prison uh-huh. until that last time he called, you dialed 1471. Yeah, yeah, that was... And uh... you found out where he was. That must have been a very difficult moment for an 11-year-old boy. It was very, it was very strange. I was, I just remember being over the moon to hear from him. The house phone rang at my nan's house. I answered the phone. I happened to. It's my dad. Out of everybody in the entire world who I wanted to speak to, it's my dad. Oh, hello. Yeah, I would, you know, it's one of those things where I would do anything to go back and hear that conversation again from him. Because I, I always remember... I remember he didn't have that much time as well, because obviously I would have spoke to him on the phone for hours, but uh-huh. he didn't have that much time. And so we hung up the phone, pressed 1471. It said something I'd never heard before, you know, not withheld or unable to trace. And I, I remember going downstairs and asking my nan. And I just said to him, I just, I, I used my head on this one. I didn't say my dad had called. I just said to my nan, uh, now, what does it mean when you press 1471 and it says, you know, unable to trace call? And my nan was just like, oh, I don't know. Maybe someone's calling from, I don't know, like a prison or somewhere. And I went, am I, and you know, I'm surprised she didn't see my face because I went, oh, prison. <clears throat> and I, I remember I just kept that to myself. I don't think I told my brother. Did you not? God, that, see, that's a massive piece of information that you, A, you, you're, you're not qualified to process. And you just sit with it and you don't, and that's hard, Darren, you know, and it's, yeah. I completely get why you would do that. I just, I, yeah, I, I, I think I just, I think I just sat with it and we never saw him at Christmas for obvious reasons. And then, yeah, three months later, we found out, you know, he had killed himself. It's weird, later in life, my mom, I said to mom, I said, mom, did you have any idea my dad m- might do that? And she went, it did pop into her head. And my nan, my nan, my nan's always the most honest. My nan says, we could see a decline in your dad's mental state. My dad would say, your dad always cared about his appearance. He was very flashy, very in your face, lots of fancy shirts. My nan would say, if my dad's shirt was tucked in, he was fine. If his shirt was like tucked out, he was having a turn. He was, my dad would say, like a mental episode. And then they all said the biggest moment for them when they realised that uh, mentally he was he was it was getting worse and he definitely needed help, so he, he shaved his dreadlocks off. And my dad was a very proud Rastafarian. My uncle still has his dreadlocks down to his end. My dad's brother, you know, very proud Rastafarian. You don't you don't cut your hair. No, and, you don't. No, yeah. you don't. And I remember seeing my the last time I saw my dad in person alive, he turned up at the house with a cap on that I'd never seen him wear before with a cap. And he was bold. And I remember being so excited because it was just a new thing. It was just like, this is, mm. my dad's got a new look and he's head slapping his head and he's bold and all that. And my mom, my mom says that was, that was um, a moment when she wishes she could have done more or said, done something because she knew that he was not well at that point, because you, you you just don't do that as a Rastafarian. And sometimes when people are having sort of mental episodes and whatnot, they can feel almost like they're their own, you know, they're claustrophobic in their own skin and yeah. who they are and they, they want to change. They have to make well, a drastic change. And He stripped his identity, didn't he, with that? Yeah, yeah, completely. It's one of those things where I um, I wish I was older. I wish I had more years 
yeah. to enjoy. Because I don't remember his voice, which really hurts. Um, it would it would be great to hear his hear his voice. I just want to see if his voice sounds anything like mine. <laughs> if yeah. we have a similar, if we have a similar sort of black country uh, voice, and uh, but the the one thing I, I I can say about my dad is I know it was definitely wasn't a perfect person and. One day, when I'm, I guess when I'm ready, he's criminal history because I just want to see the gaps. I would like right. to see what gaps there was. So, you know, um, 1992, he was in prison for, you know, six months. Oh, okay. Well, you know, I was four. I guess he wasn't around. He missed that Christmas. You know, I just kind of want to put it's all this It's a jigsaw, isn't it? It's yeah. a jigsaw. And actually, by looking at his criminal history, you'll probably start to plot what was what else was going on his li- on his life and what started to inform some of his bad decisions. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, there's so you're much trying to get to know a ghost, aren't you? It really is. Yeah, that's a great yeah. way. Of, that's a great way of looking at it. Trying to get to know a ghost. Yeah, that is that is that is it. And I, I think I, I definitely will at some point for sure. But when I find all that out, then that will be it in a way. And I decide, well, yeah. But is it not better to, at the moment, what you've got is what you used to open your show with, which is he hung himself in two thousand yeah. and was a drug dealer. Right, you need to maybe color in that picture and find out what he was apart from that. You know, because yeah. otherwise, you know, look at you—you you were a, a teenage gang member um, that got yourself into a lot of trouble. But you're so much more than that. Mm. And I know he his life was cut short at his own hand, but I'm sure that he was always so much more than just a drug dealer. Yeah, uh, that got himself into a lot of trouble. I think you're on. I think you're on a bit of a journey with this, and I think you've not even got yourself started. No, I've barely got my feet wet. Yeah, barely. You can't. They're in skates at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> well, they do get. They do get wet because the ice from the knee actually does make your feet wet. God, I'm such a nerd now. With oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> look at you. Actually, I think you're fine. But, uh, you're really, really, yeah, okay. Uh, Gonna have to correct you there. <laughs> Can I take you to my next question? Sure. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. 
you did a big thing at the age of 25. You moved out of home and you came to London and you lived in a house share. And that is a situation that many 20 and 30-somethings find themselves in. But I really wanted to know what it taught you to be living amongst strangers and what the rules and boundaries were that you put in place that enabled you to survive the chaos of such a transitory home. Yeah, I, uh, so my house share was a bit different um, because I had a friend who lived, I wanted to move to London. I was very depressed. My career wasn't going very well. I think lo- I looked at London, you know, as the place of dreams. This is where it's going to happen. I've got to move. I've got to leave the black country, move to London. Yeah. And I had a friend who lives in Wembley and she just so said that the girl next door is moving out. And I was like, oh, I should just move there. Now, I don't know any, I didn't know anything about Wembley or, or London. I didn't know North, East, South, West, whatever. I just knew I had to go there. So I moved in and my friend was there for about, three, four months, and then she was gone. Then it was just me and a bunch of complete strangers. And I learned a lot about myself. I learned that I am, I'm not a big people person. Um, I'm, ve- I'm <laughs> turns not. Turns out I don't like them. Yeah, turns out I kind of like, like I live alone now. Yeah. And it was so funny because during lockdown, people were like, oh my gosh, she lived alone. How did you do it? I said, it's the best thing ever. Did you? Oh, I loved everything about being alone during life. It was great. It was perfect for me. Obviously you talk to people, you know, online or whatever, but it was great. But living in, a, living in a, a share was weird because I never ever asked, I, I would always say hello to the people I liked because there were certain people I didn't like, of course, but I never ever. How many of you were in the house, by the way? So uh, bottom floor, it was classic London house share. Everything's a bed, everywhere's a bedroom. So No living room, just bedrooms. Uh, walk in to the right. That was a that was a, a bedroom. Living room was a bedroom. You'd keep walking. The next door, that was also a bedroom. Then you had a kitchen. So that's already two people. Go upstairs. One, two, three, four. That was four people. But two of them were couples as well. So I think that brings us to what, like eight people? Yeah. Then upstairs was another couple who had like the, the sort of upstairs uh, loft area turned into their own little place. Uh, but they had to share the same kitchen as us downstairs. So that was... 10. Uh, 10. That was 10. But then if somebody had a girlfriend or a boyfriend, then all of a sudden it could get to 12, 13 people in this house on three floors. Now, I I never told anybody that I did comedy there because it wasn't even like that. So I remember one time somebody knocked on my door and said, I just saw you on TV. And I went, <laughs> oh, yeah, that's, that's me. Yeah. Yeah. You do comedy? And I went, yeah. And I went, but you're like, you're like the unfunniest person I know. <laughs> I was like, no, no, I just don't talk. I just, I just <laughs> come in and out of the house and don't really talk because this is like, it's not that sort of a place. I, I, I realized how private I was. And maybe at times how private I was came across as either arrogance or anger, but it was never that. It was just, I went into the kitchen, I made my food, I went, went back into my room and that was it. There was a garden. I never used it because it was, I never liked the idea of being in the garden and there being other people in the garden, I just preferred to just, I just preferred to just be on my own and do my own thing. And now I never realized how much this comes across as me being the angriest person ever. <laughs> I stayed out of people's business. So what happened was this same guy said, Hey, hey, um, so and so is outside, look. And he was like kicking a wall and just like yelling and like swearing. And we're both watching him like, What is going on? Anyway, the guy, 
who was kicking the wall, moved into his room. So he was closer to me. I remember the girl, I remember thinking to myself, so I used to have Diet Cokes. I'm a big Diet Coke fan. I drink so much of it. It's a probably, a, it's a problem. People were stealing my Diet Cokes. They were going missing. From, and the, I was, from the shared kitchen. From the shared, from the shared kitchen, but we all had our section. I mean, we didn't even share cutlery. It was that sort of a house share. Nobody, <laughs> we all had our own thing. And I was like, and I remember one time I went downstairs and I was looking at it and I, and I went, what the fuck? Why? Who's taking my Diet Cokes, man? And the guy went, oh, that's me. Sorry. The guy was kicking the wall and he went, I went, oh, I went, oh, that's all right. Just ask. And he went, oh, it's okay. You know what, though? I smoke crack. And I went, excuse me? <laughs> what? And he went, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm the, I, I use some of the cans sometimes to smoke oh. crack. Oh. Yeah, so he put... Oh, he's, put some... he's not having something to refresh himself while smoking crack. He's using it to smoke the crack. But he did say to me, I am also drinking the Diet Coke. I'm not wasting <laughs> it, which did make me feel slightly better when he said that. And... <laughs> You could, you could oh, really wow. tell. You could really tell that he wanted to like open up because he just said it. He just said it to me, and then I was like, okay. Weirdly, after he tells me that, he doesn't take any of my cans again, ever again. I disappeared to. Uh, I went to Melbourne to the Melbourne Comedy Festival. I was gone for a month. I came back. There is a new girl moved in downstairs. Now the problem with these house shares is, what happens is the landlady doesn't give a shit. We have zero say on who moves in. She Really? We, that's, no. that's tough. It wasn't like that at all. What would happen is somebody would say, I'm leaving. If they liked me, they would tell me. If they didn't like me, they would just go. <laughs> she, would, she would send a, a round-robin text message that said, we will be trying to find a new tenant soon. And then you'd get a text message a week later saying, uh, Michael is moving in. Uh, he will be there tomorrow. Anyway, so I come back. There's this new, there's this new girl. She's a very nice girl, very young, probably about. She was must have been about twenty five. Very pretty, really sort of happy person. I'm like hi. I say hello to her. Blah, blah, blah. Eventually, uh, she starts to dislike me because um, because I'm just a quiet guy. What happens is I notice that the guy who is who's smoking crack and who was kicking the wall, who moved into the the, the new room. She moved in whilst I was in Melbourne, about two weeks into my trip. I was only gone a month. By the time I'd come back, two weeks later, they're already really close. So I'm like, hold on a second. It took you about around three weeks for you two to be shopping together, cooking food together. He didn't know her. And then we had a bit of a heart to heart because um, I, said, I said, oh, what do you think of so-and-so? I said, oh, she seems like a nice girl. And he goes, yeah, she's really nice. And I said, I said, just, just be careful because you, you live here, you know? And if it's something I, if something goes wrong, if she's not interested or whatever, you have to live with each other. Yes. And I, 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 I used it to, I said, don't shit where you eat. <laughs> what a beautiful way of phrasing it. Uh, what a cla- I know, what a, what a classy way. I, sh- I should write children's books. And or greetings cards. Your greetings cards, yeah. <laughs> anyway, about a month after this, I am upstairs with my then girlfriend and we hear shouting, screaming, banging. And I'm like, what is going on? So I've immediately gone down and it's him. 
He lived on my floor, the one floor up. She lived on the floor down. He's kicking her door in, like kicking it, like booting it, booting it, booting it. I've gone downstairs and I've gone, what, what, what? I've grabbed him and gone, what are you doing? What's all this about? Anyway, he disappears. Uh, I go into her room, talk to her. And she was, she was, you know, she's like, we kissed, but I told him that I wasn't interested. And he comes back, tries to kick her door in. I grab him. Me and him are then fighting. We're wrestling on the floor. So I said, can somebody call the landlady and let her know, or just let her know what's going on? The landlady comes and, um, and I'm like, can somebody call, can one of you call the police? Now, the landlady and him were mates because he is a people person. He says hello to everybody. He does the bins. He cuts the grass. He's always confident, always chatting to people, whereas I kind of keep myself to myself. The landlady is having a go at me <laughs> because I, I want the police involved. I'm like, he's kicking her door down. We need to call the police. We need to call the police. She's, she's again, shouting. He runs and boots the door in. I grab him. Me and him fall, over, fall into a table and break the table. Now, as this is going on, Everybody else is in. They are all at the top of the stairs just watching. They're literally just watching. And this is, this is, the one guy was bigger than me. Just watching. Watching me wrestle with the guy. while The, the, crackhead. Land, the crackhead. While the landlady and her husband are there watching. Whilst there's a, a, a screaming uh, young, uh, young lady uh, screaming her head off, crying tears. And I, and I remember at one point my phone fell out my pocket due to the scuffle on the floor as I'm trying to stop this guy from getting into her room. And then uh, the, the one guy upstairs comes downstairs, grabs my phone, says, I've got your phone, and goes back upstairs. <laughs> and it's just, I've got your phone, and just goes back upstairs. Doesn't decide to help. <laughs> Finally, she calls the police. The landlady and... still didn't call the police. <gasps> she still didn't want to call the police. So she, the lady finally called the police. She finally gives in because she didn't want to get him in trouble to begin with because he's her friend and she feels kind of sorry and she kind of blamed herself in a way. The police come. They tell him to calm down. He doesn't calm down. The police end up having to fight him outside and they arrest him. Obviously me and the landlady, I'm like, I felt like I was, I was trying to tell people um, that I've just seen Bigfoot and they're like, what are you talking about? Because <laughs> no, because, yeah. I, because I was like, he can't stay here. The landlady was like, oh, Darren, calm down. We'll, we'll, have, a, we'll have a group meeting in the morning. Anyway, I'm, I'm like, what is going on? I remember the next morning, next day I had a TV show record. I come back in, walk into the kitchen. All the tenants are in the kitchen. The landlady's in the kitchen. Husband's in the kitchen. Crackhead's back in the kitchen. She's in the kitchen. Everybody has decided he can stay. No. Just going back to it, I I realised that if you are a very, uh, very much a people person, a very upbeat, all the time people person, that you have an energy that I guess people love, especially in a house share that at times was tense because not everybody in the house share liked each other, but everybody liked him. Everybody in there liked him. But when he went off on his uh, on his tangent and you know tried to attack this girl and was smoking crack and kicking walls and all this, people were willing to defend him because they liked they liked his energy. I learned more about who I am as a person 
being in a house share, because uh, I didn't I didn't realize that I can come across as, as you know sort of a moody guy when in my head I'm just keeping myself to myself I'm not hurting yeah. anyone I'm not bothering anyone I'm just not you know in everyone's business wow crazy Lord of the tale live on your own live on your own if you can oh <laughs> live on your own <laughs> okay my third and final question for you What incredibly strong opinion or belief do you have that is completely unimportant in the grand scheme of things? Something that is so like something that get you really, really fired up, but actually really isn't that significant when Easy. you stand back. Go Easy. It's a complete change of pace. I do not think croissants should be in at breakfast time. Uh, <laughs> I, I stand. I stay. It's a, you know when people say it's a hill I'm willing to die on. I will. <laughs> Die, cover me in bullets and and burn me at the stake on a hill. I don't get it. It make okay, I'm very fussy with food. I've realized this. I, I'm very um certain things for example, I don't like cheese at breakfast time. Uh no cheese. But, but no on the che- continent, it's it's a big it's a big thing. Cold meats, cheeses. I don't I don't uh certain cold meats, yes, but um for me, I believe there's very strict food for breakfast and there's very strict food for uh dinner time lunch time but croissants it's it's a it's it's a buttery it's basically a dessert for breakfast and when i go to hotels and i see croissants there is a part of me that grits my teeth it makes me so mad a chocolate croissant for breakfast kate i'm not having it a pan of chocolate what's it ever done to you not having it not having it it's not breakfast food you have that at lunchtime when it's after 12 you do not have that (laughs) at 7 a.m i'm sorry i can't have it have a bit of toast have a bit of toast with some jam and some butter if you need a bit of a weird sugary but how is that different because it's toast. Toast is prop. That's proper breakfast for a croissant. Is not. It's like a buttery. It, it's a pastry. It's yeah. pastry. <laughs> I do not enjoy pastry for breakfast. Give me a pastry for breakfast. That's acceptable. Um, but a right? croissant. It's not acceptable. It's not. It's like if somebody says to me, "Oh, I had a sausage roll for breakfast." What are you doing? It's not breakfast food at all. I don't understand. It's like so so post- nothing pastry-based for breakfast, is that what you're saying? What is on your breakfast menu then? What, we're allowed toast. We've established that well. We're, 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 to- we're allowed all the typical breakfast things. We're allowed toast. We're allowed sausage, bacon, eggs, beans. Even though I do not like wet toast, <laughs> I'm not a fan of uh, my toast when it's wet, so I don't like beans on toast. Right. I'm, not the, I'm not the biggest fan of lots of butter on toast. I don't like a wet bit of toast. Okay. It's not. It's never really been a Darren Harriet thing. Um, I, I like porridge. Porridge. Um, I will give you sugary cereal, even though as I've gotten older, it, it, it's less appealing to me. But when yeah. I, you know, when you're what about young, a pancake? Where'd you stand on a pancake? Um, what are we having on this pancake? Eh? Wow. This, this is the is, question. See, I'm a lemon and sugar girl, but my son, for example, is honey and banana. I will give him the banana. I, it depends how much honey. It'd have to be. Because, I mean, how much uh, you, how much honey do you really need to put? It's like when people have, like, Nutella on a pancake in the morning. Yeah. I'm yeah. like, oh, why don't you just go out and eat a birthday cake for breakfast? <laughs> <laughs> 
I don't get it. You just, I just don't feel sweet things for me. I, I'm very fussy. It's like when I have, um, it's like with, with food and uh, sauces and stuff. I'm not a big sauce guy. I like sauces, but I don't like, I like sugary. You know, people who are, here's me mayo, here's me tomato, and we mix it all in together, all that sort of stuff. I can't do it. I, I Everything has to be quite separated. And I don't do, I, I can't do really sweet things, especially for breakfast. Uh, it, it ruins my day. Like a glass of like proper apple juice for breakfast will, will ruin my day. It will make me so sad because I do not. <laughs> it will. I know this is the most first world problems you've ever heard in your entire What's life. All? Oh, cross. <laughs> I do not get it. You see these, especially at hotels. Hotels, I understand that you want to just, you don't care. And it's just, you know, it's just whatever. It's like a buffet, isn't it? Hotel for breakfast. But when I go to a hotel and I see, you know, you see the eggs, you see the the the, the toast, all that sort of stuff. And they see the fruit, which is great. And you know what? I'll even give you um, low-fat yogurt as well. I'll give you the low-fat yogurt. I think it's still a bit strange, but I'll give you that. But then when I turn and I see pan of chocolate and cross lines, and muffins. Muffins. For breakfast, Kate. <laughs> For breakfast, Kate. I can't have it. I look at it and I, I, I put my head in my hands and I'm just, and I say, this, I can't do this. I can't do. Well, yes, sorry. To go back to your point, I do not believe croissants should be eaten at breakfast. To be honest, I don't think they should be eaten at all at this point. I think they're absolutely a bit of a useless bit of flake. <laughs> And there goes your French tour dates. Yeah, I don't know. I know. They would absolutely Bonjour, ça va for you. Keep it, mate. I'll keep it. I'll wait till I'll wait till midday and have one. How about that? Well, listen, no croissants right now, because obviously you're gonna be wearing some pretty tight outfits as you take to the ice. Have you yeah. seen have you seen some of the stuff that you've got to wear yet? Do you have to do the uh, all in ones? You know what's so funny, Kate? It, other than falling over in the training, the costume question is is so popular. Mm. I have got, I mean, you, obviously it's a podcast. I have got wild sort of, this is like, all my clothing generally is quite yeah. bright and mad anyway. I mean, You've I've got, got a sequin. That's, that's a lot of sequins. That's a sequin jacket. I've got frilly top. I'm very dancing on ice ready as it is. So there's no, there's no costume that they've got. Okay. The only costumes where I'm a bit like, oh, this is going to be a bit mental, is the ones where, you know, when it's like, um, oh, gosh, when it's uh, uh, like, um, not movie week necessarily, when it's like musical week and stuff <laughs> like that and all that. Because I'm like, I'm like, oh, mate, if they put me in like a Shrek outfit, I'm never, <laughs> that's going to kill me when it's movie week and I've got the big ears and I'm painted green. Oh, that. <laughs> That's the only, other than that, I don't mind being a dashing prince or a Disney, all that sort of stuff. But if I'm there just dressed as like uh, Shrek or something on the ice, oh, that, that's the, <laughs> out of all the costumes, I don't mind all the tight thing stuff. I don't mind all the, the see-through, all that. So I'm completely okay with that. It's just if I'm some, uh, some Disney character I don't want to be, that's just not flattering. I do not. Oh, Darren, oh, do you mind being the donkey from Shrek? Yes, I do, actually. That's, I don't want to be the donkey from Shrek, guys. Oh, uh, do you know, Darren, I, I was actually in Shrek. I had six lines. Shrek 2. 
Shrek, Shrek 2. Shrek 2, the yeah. best one. I think so, obviously. Yeah, Shrek- me and Jonathan Ross, we were shipped in. I took over in Europe from Joan Rivers and he took over from Jay Leno. No way. So I too have suffered the indignity of wearing Shrek ears whilst recording my ADR. Um, It's not as bad as you think. Did you have to wear... Wait, you have to wear Shrek ears? Well, they liked you to just for sort of, you know, they film everything, don't they? And they shove it out on like, you know, they shove it out on video around the world, yeah. There's a big difference between what you did, which is awesome and a part of your legacy in like a cool way, to then just having (laughs) two, two people who sort of graduated in some sort of costume degree, spray paint me green and have me pushed around on the ice with some, with like a a fake belly and some fake ears going around (laughs) pretending while my, while my, while my pro is dressed as Princess Fiona, but the the beautiful version. And I'm the one who's actually as Shrek. There's a bit of a difference in that, I think. Yeah. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Uh, are you looking forward to taking to the ice? Because obviously we're recording this now ahead of Christmas, mm-hmm. ahead of 2023, ahead of you making your ice debut. Yeah, I can't wait. I can't wait. Uh, we're training so hard. I do stretches every morning. My workouts at the gym. I've dropped 23 pounds. No. I've, yeah. You've dropped I've, 23. That's not almost two stone. 23 pounds. So we started training. Uh, I did my audition in June. And then uh, I found out sort of like July-ish. So I've been working since then. I'm going to drop more weight on the way. I'm taking right. it very seriously because people, I think also I didn't get my figure skates until later than everybody else because of the size of my feet. So there's this whole storyline. your feet? My feet, well, I like to think I am a, uh, a gentleman's 13, but it turns out I am a Shrek 14. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so they've had to custom make my, uh, my figure skates. Uh, and it took six weeks. Oh, wow. So I, was, so I was wearing hockey skates, which are completely different. I won't bore you with them, but they're completely different Yeah, no, different it's skates. a big difference, isn't it? Yeah. So I've kind of had to learn to skate again. Things are going well, so I feel, but I do feel like I'm slightly behind everybody else, just in terms of getting that that nice rhythm, that nice motion of skating. So, um, uh, but, so I'm trying to do everything I can whilst off the ice to try and make myself better. But that's not bad for the old dating app, is it? Like the biggest feat they've ever had on the show. <laughs> and you know what they say, Darren, you know what they say. They know what they say, yes, yes. The bigger the feet, the bigger the marks in the ice. That's what they, <laughs> it's 12 inch blades as well. They're, 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 um, it, the, 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 the brand that have made the skates are a legendary sort of uh, figure skate brand that make figure skates for a living, of course. And they went, these are the biggest skates we've ever made for a human being. And I was like, why would, I was like, why would you say human being as if like you've made them for a bear or something? <laughs> or a large footed goat. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like, all right, do it. I get it. Oh my yeah, God. So. Well, I really will look forward to seeing you and your big feet on the ice and good luck to you. It's been <laughs> lovely talking to you and um, you, your story is remarkable. Continue to tell it. Oh, thank you, Kate. And you're an absolute legend. It's been an absolute joy talking to you. And yes, please get those votes. Assume no one's safe, especially Bigfoot. Exactly, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) Uh, Huge thanks to my guest, Darren Harrier. Don't forget, you can catch him every Sunday competing on Dancing on Ice on ITV. Or why not grab yourself a ticket for his UK tour, Roadman. Tickets are available wherever you get your tickets or head to his website, darrenharriot.com. 
And of course, if you want to hear more great chat with outstanding comedians, then get scrolling through our back catalogue. We've got episodes with Russell Kane, Kerry Godleyman, Daisy May Cooper, Rob Brydon, Keith Lemon, Griff Reese Jones, and Dancing on Ice's legendary Torvalyn Dean. My thanks to you, as always, for loaning us your ears for this episode and to Maria Nips and the Yahoo Studios team who produced the show with me. Editing is by Eleanor Humphrey and our music comes courtesy of Andy Bell. Don't forget, you can check out his solo material as well as his work with Ride and Oasis wherever you get your music. I'll be back next week with more great guests. Until then, thank you for your company. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.